All right, good to have everybody here this morning. Let's get started so that we can finish maybe close to time. We have to try. Anyway, um, let's have another word of prayer. Get started. Thank you. Father, it's a, it is always a joy to open your word. Um, I, I find that... Uh, Maybe because of schedules or whatever, and I haven't been in church lately, travel or whatever reason, or haven't really spent adequate time in your word uh, and quiet time. It doesn't take long for the for the dust of this world and the flesh and the devil to accumulate and attitudes to, to start to sour and perspectives to get depressing and, and fearful and, and angry. And uh, so we thank you for the water of your word. I pray you would wash us again uh, today in it. As we so need it. Help us to have our, our minds and our hearts refreshed and the perspective uh, returned to the heavenly perspective. And uh, as we turn the corner and we, we uh, in John's Gospel, uh, start chapter 12, um, and we're nearing the end of your public ministry, we're just mindful of, of how much uh, pressure and um, Humanly speaking, stress uh, there there was placed on your shoulders, Lord Jesus, um, by the doubt, fears, misunderstandings of even your closest uh, people and uh, your closest disciples and, and followers who are close to you. And yet in the midst of all of that, knowing all of it, you came anyway, humbled yourself, emptied yourself of the glory uh, due to you and and became a slave even to the point of death on the cross uh, you became poor that we might be rich and so we thank you so much that you were willing to do that not just for friends but for enemies as we were before salvation what a great love it is that you display help us to see that again fresh this morning help us to see the glory of the father in the face of jesus in his name John chapter 12, new notes, right? We're handing that out this morning. Um, coming off of, no surprise, chapter 11, right? <laughs> Good thing I'm here to tell you the obvious. <laughs> chapter 11 is, is, is one of the longest chapters in this gospel. Uh, and we've, we've taken a long time to, to walk through it. <clears throat> That's relative. Well, I was going to make some snide comments, but I was refrain from doing that <laughs> as to how long we take. But but um, seriously, uh, chapter twelve, as I as, as chapter eleven, as, as I've told you, gives us what I the more I study it, the more I compare it with other gospels, it gives us. What I think is the most significant public sign that Jesus ever did, and that's the raising of Lazarus, right? It's interesting that the, John's Gospel is the only one that mentions it. And uh, so we're going to take some time to look at this, because as we go into chapter 12, we're still hearing the effect of the, the raising of Lazarus, okay, in chapter 12. And uh, we're going to look at... Uh, particularly Matthew and Mark, if you flip your notes over, you see that I've got some, the whole back side of the notes is, is taken up with 
uh, section from Matthew and Mark. These are parallel accounts of the anointing of Jesus by Mary. And, uh, you know, I kind of, in the back of my mind as we've been looking at the raising of Lazarus, you know, if it's such a significant sign, why is it not mentioned in the other Gospels? And I, I think <clears throat> I think I've kind of um, stumbled across the reason for that. And I'll just give you a little preview because, you know, they say public, you remember the, you remember public speaking? Tell them what you told them, tell them, then tell them what you told them, what you told them, right? Tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them, right? So here's my, tell you what I'm going to tell you, <laughs> okay? Uh, Matthew and Mark uh, have, a, have a different angle. I didn't really look too much at Luke because he didn't have, <clears throat> he doesn't tell us about Mary, at least not this, at least not this anointing of Jesus. There's a different one that's often confused, and we'll talk about that as well. But um, anyway, so so Mark, Matthew, and Mark's accounts seem to be uh, more interested in connecting the anointing of Jesus by this expensive oil directly to what pushed Judas over the edge to finally go to apparently been mulling it around, but this was the, as we say, the straw that broke the camel's back and pushed Judas to go meet with the religious leaders, the chief priests specifically are the ones mentioned in both gospels and, and, and offer his services to help them. Okay. So Matthew and Mark are very, are very keen on tying that piece together. Whereas John makes a, takes a different angle. He's more interested in, in helping us see the raising of Lazarus and its significance in the enthusiasm of the crowds when Jesus rides into Jerusalem a few weeks later at the triumphal entry. Does that make sense? So they each have a different angle and a different perspective. And so for Matthew and Mark's accounts, and evidently Luke's too, Luke has a different angle, um, Lazarus' story doesn't, uh, it sort of maybe detracts from the main point they're trying to make. So they don't, they don't include it, whereas John does include it because he's trying to make a different point. But it's just interesting we, when we compare them all together uh, to see uh, how all this actually fits together. Okay, that makes sense. All right, hopefully. You get one for yourself and, yep. and David. Yeah, I thought you said David, don't get one. Uh, well, <clears throat> since he's not here. <laughs> yeah, where is it? Where is he? He was there. Yeah, Thank you, Rick. Appreciate it. Acting stupid, but you know, <laughs> you have to be smarter than the thing you're operating out here. Yes, all right. So, um, so chapter 11 <clears throat> explains to us, and, and John, again, John's the only one who, who does this now. The tail end of chapter 11, where we've just come through, so the prior set of notes was, was titled Unbelief on Trial, right. Because even though at the tail end of chapter 11, Jesus is the one on trial, right, more or less, they have, they convene sort of an emergency council of the Sanhedrin. And remember Caiaphas, who's high priest, is the one that, that he's, he's, um, he's sort of the, the chair, you might say, or the president of that body, right? And he's the one that rallies the, the bulk of the support in favor of, of formally deciding 
to kill Jesus. Okay? And that's where we've been, and we've seen that. And Jesus went away, and, and I, I got to looking again uh, uh, carefully to see if, if John gives us any idea as to how long this was. And it doesn't really say. Um, if you look at verse 54 of chapter 11, it says, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly with the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. And uh, Ephraim is not too terribly far away. Um, I believe it's across the Jordan, again, sort of just on the other side of the Jordan. So it's, it's a little bit, um, you know, you kind of have to want to get there kind of thing. But it's not, you know, he's not like months away. He knows that he's going to have to go to Jerusalem here in a few weeks. But he's not pushing his luck, as we say, right? He's not hanging out in Bethany, which is only two miles away. He could do that. Mary and Martha would be, now that Lazarus is raised from the dead, you think they would, would welcome Jesus staying home? Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But what's interesting there is that Jesus doesn't tempt his, tempt his fate, so to speak. You know, even though the Father would have protected him because his time, it, you know, to be crucified is, is during Passover, right? Um, but Jesus doesn't, doesn't do that. He does everything he can to cooperate with God and his plan, which is interesting, okay? even though he has the promise of protection. So many Jews are getting ready for the Passover. That's verse 55 and to the end of the chapter. And the chief, and, and there's a lot of buzz, right? Remember, there's all this buzz going on in Jerusalem because we had, at the raising of Lazarus, we had a very influential and powerful crowd of witnesses there to see that. And there was no doubt this man was dead, right? And there's a lot of influential uh, wealthy, influential witnesses, you might say now. There's no longer just the backwater, you know, Galileans with some rumors of a guy doing miracles up there. It's now in our own backyard, so to speak, looking at it from the leader's viewpoint, right? And so they're very, very worried about that and, and very concerned. Uh, but Jerusalem is filled with this buzz as more and more Jews are coming in. Remember I told you that based on um, counts that Josephus and other ancient historians give us, particularly Josephus, based on the counts that they give us of how many lambs were sacrificed during Passover around this time, uh, scholars estimate there could be as around a million to 1.2 million Jews in Jerusalem. Normally it's, it's a population of about maybe 200 to 250,000 in Jerusalem in the sort of the immediate surrounding area. Okay, but you think about that, right? And we talked about, you know, we feel the crowds around here at, what would we say, almost 500,000 just living in the greater Asheville area. Imagine double that, right? In a smaller, in a smaller area. That's right, even more concentrated area. And, um, and so, uh, thank you, David. Um, so, as, as the Jews are, and, and John is telling us that, right? So, uh, uh, verse 55 of chapter 11, now the pastor of the Jews was at hand, and many, many, notice that word, went up from the country to Jerusalem, pastor to purify themselves. As they're coming, as these faithful, God-fearing Jews, right, because they're obeying the law, this is one of the three main feasts that you have to show up at the temple for, right? So they're coming into Jerusalem, and as more and more of them are coming in, Jerusalem is a buzz with the raising of Lazarus and these influential witnesses that were there to see it are spreading the word everywhere. And people are buzzing about it, right? And 
And so uh, John just summarizes that in verse 56. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another, as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all, right? John is, John is, this was not one conversation that two Jews had over in the corner of the, of the uh, outer court. No, this was a summary of the buzz, right? This was John, just John telling us the foremost subject on everybody's mind was Jesus. Is he going to show up? Is he coming? You know, that's important because as we get into chapter 12 in the triumphal entry, it explains why the, 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 there's almost this, um, dry tinder there just waiting for the spark right all right so but but contrast that with 57 now the chief priests and pharisees notice the two of them working together right they normally don't get along very well but here they are uh had given orders anyone knew where he was they should let them know so that they might arrest him and that's important too because guess who else heard this judas right judas knew this everybody knew this Judas definitely knew this, the disciples knew that, and Jesus knew it as well, right? That's why he's staying out of Dodge for a little bit. Full time is right. So that's our whole background. All right, so let's look at our notes. And I've titled this, Mary Anoints Jesus. Um, and before we get into, into the text itself, I want to deal with, with two um, Two issues, okay, that if you're paying attention, you might have in the back of your mind. Um, first one is titled The Chronology Problem. Okay, so let's read that together and we'll talk about it here. In our text at the start of chapter 12, John reintroduces us to Mary, the sister of Lazarus, at the time when she anointed Jesus with the oil of spikenard. But when did Mary anoint Jesus? It might sound like an easy answer when you read John's account. It is clear from his gospel that she did this, uh, did this during a dinner held in honor of Jesus at the home of Simon the leper, a detail added by Matthew and Mark. The next day finds Jesus going through Bethphage to pick up the donkey in her cult, her disciples preparing the way for him to ride in Jerusalem and the enthusiastic crowds welcoming him. The problem comes with Matthew and Mark's accounts of Mary's anointing of Jesus because they put it after the triumphal entry, while John puts it before the triumphal entry. Everybody with me? Mm -hmm. For reference, Mary's anointing of Christ appears in Matthew 26, 6 through 12, and Mark 14, 3 through 9, um, which is printed on the back of your notes. But their accounts of the triumphal entry are in Matthew 21 and Mark 11, right? So the triumphal entry is Matthew 21, Mark 11, and then Mary uh, anointing Jesus is in Matthew 26 and in Mark 14. You see that? So if, you, if you're in your brain, you're thinking, oh, okay, they're giving me a nice serial linear account of everything that happened in Christ's life. You're going to be confused when you compare that to John. See that? Because they put the anointing of, of Jesus by Mary after Trump, whereas John puts it before. So which way did it go? Next paragraph. Thank you for asking. <laughs> While Matthew and Mark tell us 
that some of the disciples grumbled about the anointing. Oh, I'm sorry. I skipped that, didn't I? Um, sorry, middle, middle of our, our, our second right. paragraph. Right. The, the resolution of this apparent discrepancy can be found in a careful examination of the contexts of all these accounts. In Matthew and Mark, they tell us many things Jesus did directly after the triumphal entry, including his final cleansing of the temple. Remember that John is the only gospel that tells us that Jesus cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry, right? The others don't tell us that. And John does not tell us about the final cleansing. So we know that Jesus did a total of two cleansings, one at the beginning of his ministry and one at the end, okay? Matthew and Mark are, are, are give us a whole lot of other things, like, for example, the cursing of the fig tree, uh, that type of thing. There's a lot of stuff there in, in between those chapters that I note there between, you know, in Matthew's case, uh, 21 and 26, or in Mark uh, um, 11 and 14. There's a lot of other material in there that John doesn't even talk about. All right. So they, the answer to this is that they're, they're, again, like I said earlier, their perspectives are different. What they're trying, the main point they're trying to get to is different than John, okay? It's not wrong or different, it's just, or I'm not, I'm not saying it's, it's wrong or contradictory, maybe that's what I mean. Uh, it's, not, it's not contradictory, it's just, it's different the way they tell it. Okay, so in Matthew and Mark, they tell us many things Jesus did after the triumphal entry, including his final cleansing of the temple. Now watch this. They then jump back in time to the day before the triumphal entry to disclose the event that pushed Judas over the edge towards conspiring with the Jewish leaders to capture Jesus. It's a common thing to do, right? I mean, you, you know, if you're telling a linear story, I mean, you, and you get to a point, and oftentimes we'll say, now before I tell you the next thing, I need to back up and tell you this, right? Mm -hmm. That's what they're doing. They're saying, okay, it's not a total linear thing, it's, it's oh, let me back up and tell you this bit right over here so that you understand what's, what I need to tell you next. Okay, You see that? So Matthew and Mark are concerned about helping us understand why Judas went to this extreme measure, what it was that pushed him over the edge to go to the chief priests, which were, you know, we looked at them, right? They're super corrupt, and everybody knew that. But Judas was willing to go to them and do this. And John kind of hints at it, too. John even kind of adds some information to that, which we'll see as we go in, get into the text, that explain, he, he's the one that names Judas. Um, Matthew and Mark don't do that, but they, right on the heels of, of what, what of, of talking about Mary uh, doing, the, doing the anointing, they say immediately right after that, then Judas went and did this, okay? So even though they don't name Judas as the primary disciple that's complaining about the waste of the expensive oil, John does, Fill that detail in. See, so when you get all the accounts together, you get a full picture. It's kind of cool. All right, so let's look at this last paragraph here. While Matthew and Mark tell us that some of the disciples grumbled about the anointing, John tells us that it was Judas who led the complaint about the supposed waste of the very expensive oil. John further clarifies that Judas was driven by greed not the pretentious reason of helping the poor that he gave for his protest. Matthew and Mark's accounts link this outpouring of Mary's treasure 
to Judas, seeking to Judas, seeking to participate <clears throat> with the chief priests in their scheme to arrest and kill Jesus. <clears throat> it seems clear that Matthew and Mark are using a common literary method of telling, watch this, two parallel storylines that were happening at the same time but in different places, right? That makes sense? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> if, if, you, if you're, if you're, you're telling a story and it comes along like this, and then suddenly the story forks and you've got two different characters. You know, you do this in a movie, right? A movie can only be shown linearly. You can't watch the two, you can't like, some of them kind of divide the screen sometimes into two parts and you see a phone conversation, maybe both ends of the phone conversation at the same time. Kind of hard to watch the two of them, right? Well, it, it's the same idea, you know? So movies will do that too, they'll, you know, up to here. And then, and then they'll flash, you know, meanwhile, the scene changes over here. This other thing that was happening at the same time, what you were watching just happened, right? So same idea. Does that make sense? Is everybody with me? All right, so our story forks, and these events happen in parallel. And Matthew and Mark uh, just just do that by going back in time. And if you look carefully, and, and that's why I printed this for you in the back of the notes, uh, when you see that, um, and I printed a little context around the anointing of Mary so you can see that for yourself. They just say uh, in Matthew's account, verse 6 back there, flip your notes over, 26.6. Uh, now, when Jesus was at Bethany, the house of Simon the leper, look at Mark's account, uh, verse 3 down there. And while he was at Bethany, the house of Simon the leper, blah, blah, blah. They don't say, compare that to John. Look at, look at John, uh, where, let's see, uh, where he says here, um, verse, uh, verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 12. In your Bibles. The next day. You see that? So where John says that, he means the next day. But Matthew and Mark don't say that, right? They just say, okay, now at the time when Jesus was here, this is what happened. That makes sense? So their accounts don't demand the chronology that John's account does. Because John says the next day, we know that the triumphal entry happened the next day after, G after Mary did this anointing of Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay. Please tell me if it doesn't. Okay. Um, so let's let's finish reading this paragraph. So John further clarifies that Judas was driven by greed, right? Um, Matthew and Mark's accounts link this outpouring of Mary's treasure to Judas seeking to participate with the chief priests in their scheme to arrest and kill Jesus. It seems clear that Matthew and Mark are using common literary, literary method of telling two parallel storylines that were happening at the same time, but in different places. John is interested in making sure that we know the triumphal entry happened the day after dinner, the dinner where Mary anointed Jesus, and that the enthusiasm of the welcoming multitudes is directly tied to the witness, witnessing of those who had just seen Jesus raise Lazarus a few weeks earlier. That makes sense. Matthew and Mark are concerned with helping us. It's interesting because it's almost like what she does here is sort of this, this, I don't want to say pivotal event, but it's a it's a it's an important event that has maybe ramifications or or sort of fuels the fire on the one hand. Uh, in John's account, 
Mary is sort of uh, summarizing what what she feels as well as many other people who are believing in Jesus are feeling, right? It's just almost like she represents all of them in their in their approval of him and their um, bless wanting to bless him in a sense, right? And, and so John has that positive repercussion and the excitement and enthusiasm of the crowds the next day as hail. They hail the son of David as he comes. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, right? And they're welcoming him. Uh, but then there's this negative fallout, the other side, the dark side of that as well, that Matthew and Mark look at. And that is the, the effect that that had in Judas's heart. He was already a thief, John tells us. He was already stealing. He saw the value of that oil and, and wanted it for himself. He coveted that. And, uh, and it was the love of money. At the end of the day, that drove him to do that. It's very interesting. Okay. By the way, that's a warning for us, isn't it? It is a warning for us. It is. not kidding when it says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Be very careful about that. And if you think you're not susceptible to that, be careful. All right. Um, Let's look at the second. Let's see how we're doing on time. Oh, we got another another two hours. Good. <laughs> Sorry, JP. I <laughs> had my coffee this morning, so I'm watered. Um, second point on our notes: um, a similar story in Luke's gospel. I just wanted to. Didn't want to spend a lot of time, and I didn't put a lot of text here on this one because it's not a big a big point, but it is important because there's a very close account of a woman coming and anointing the feet of Jesus with, with a costly oil. It doesn't really say spikenard. It just says a fragrant oil in Luke, Luke's account. And, and it happened. both accounts happen in the, in the home of a man named Simon. So it, it, it's easy for people to get, the, get them confused, you know, unless you really slow down and carefully look at it. So I wanted to, to frame that for us so we're not getting them confused because they are separate stories and apparently two different women. I'm, I'm convinced. I don't think this is Mary doing it twice. Okay, uh, so let's talk about that. That's a, a next section on our notes on page one. Okay, a similar story in Luke's gospel. This tale of Mary's anointing of Jesus is similar to one in Luke seven thirty-six to thirty-nine. In both cases, a woman brought an expensive alabaster jar of fragrant oil, anointed Jesus' feet with it, and wiped his feet with her hair. Maybe it's that last detail, particularly because you, if you're like me, you're kind of imagining you know, how is she able to, you know, I, I can't tell you my imagination running wild with what, what, how are they doing this and why are they doing, you know what I'm saying? It's like, so that detail, I think probably more than anything else, links these two stories in people's minds and gets it confused easily, okay? But it is there in both accounts. So there are similarities there. There, there are similarities. Um, <clears throat> next, uh, Similarity is the next sentence there. Both events happen in the house of a man named Simon. That's also interesting. Okay. One is called Simon the Pharisee. That's, that's uh, in Luke's account. All right. Uh, in, in our account here in John and Matthew and Mark, um, actually it's Matthew and Mark. John doesn't tell us it was Simon the leper, but Matthew and Mark tell us that this happened in a house of a man named Simon the leper. Okay, and, and which we don't know nothing else other than that, but just knowing that alone tells us that he, the fact that he was there, that he had a house and he was there was 
almost certainly healed by Jesus because he wouldn't be allowed back into the community, back to his house and everything if he weren't cleansed. Right? So he had been almost certainly healed by Jesus, was, was likely a follower of Jesus, uh, another wealthy Jew who was uh, sympathetic toward and, and following Jesus and wanted to give a dinner in his honor in his home. Okay? Whereas Simon the Pharisee happens maybe a year, year and a half earlier, totally different home, different man, but they happen to have the same name. However, <clears throat> back to our notes now, there are enough differences, especially in the timing of the events, for us to be sure they are separate occasions. We should not confuse them and think of Mary as a prostitute. While the scripture doesn't give us the name of the woman in Luke's account, we can be fairly certain it was not Mary. Mary had enough money as a member of a wealthy family to support herself without resorting to prostitution. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, it would be hard to explain how a woman of such bad reputation as the prostitute in Luke's account could also be the close friend of so many pious and well-connected Jews as we see supporting Mary in the time of her grief. Does that make sense? Very clear to me that these are two different things. <clears throat> in the one case, in Luke's account, and it's a touching account. I was, I was, you know, I kind of teared up again just reading it, you know, as I was reading it again and just how how she just displays this 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 prostitute former prostitute because she's clearly repenting of her sin and she doesn't say anything she she knows she knows full well whose house that is and she knows full well what he thinks of her as a Pharisee right and and and, and Simon you know thinks within himself if this man were a prophet he knew what kind of woman this was touching her out there he let her touch her you know what kind of woman she is. Well, she doesn't care anything for that. The boldness of her to, to respond to the work of the Holy Spirit in her heart to that degree, to overcome any shame or, or, or social uh, pariah, anything of that nature. And she just, it drives her to come in. And they were allowed. Remember, if you had a, a, a home like that, at that time, it was, even though you weren't invited to the dinner, if a well-connected, wealthy, you know, uh, wealthy, but maybe, maybe a, a a VIP guest arrived at somebody's home. It was a custom for people who weren't invited to just come in. They could come in and stand. They couldn't really communicate, and but they could stand around the room. They're outside and listen to the conversation. So you didn't have phones and that kind of thing, right? You didn't have all this other means of, of communication. So this would have been a big deal to have a, a rock star like Jesus come into your town and go to the home of this guy. And she, she, the Holy Spirit is clearly working in her heart and, and repenting, and, she, and the tears fall, and, and she, she pours out her oil. And what's interesting to me about that too is that that was almost certainly purchased with money that she earned from her living. Right? Think about that. And that would have been a, a, a this like her four hundred one k. You know, that's her, that's one of her valuable assets that she could either sell if need be or maybe you know you maybe she used that a little bit in her trade too because it's a fragrant oil and it's no it's no good whatever but anyway point is don't confuse those accounts any thoughts about these things i remember uh, mcgee jaber mcgee talking about that account and he said that uh, he envisioned like you said standing around and she was so touched being in his presence that she couldn't stop the tears it just 
they kept falling on the floors and uh, falling on Jesus' feet, and she was embarrassed. She didn't know how to wipe them, so she finally stooped down and wiped them with her hair in the middle of that group, which is a very touching scene to me. And anointing his feet, too. Yeah. Remember, that's too, right. Jesus that's said right. to Simon, for that. Well, that's right. You didn't provide the normal custom of washing my feet, but she's washed it. And she not only washed it, which was the lowest, most humbling act. It's like cleaning the toilets, right? You know, the, the, the newest, lowest servant on the totem pole gets to clean the toilets and you know, wash the feet. <laughs> Any other thoughts? About this and also the chronology issue. Is it clear? Maybe well, we should go back to that custom of washing feet. I kind of like the way you want to. We'll start with the pastor. See if, <laughs> you know, if, if he can the, sit still the, long enough. The, uh, the, one of the things that comes to mind with this is this is a very good proof that the Bible is, in fact, inspired and that these writers didn't sit down and try to come together to organize this so it sounded feasible. They wrote what was on their heart about the Lord. And uh, they fit together perfectly, but yet they will stand alone as an account. Mm -hmm. It's really very interesting. That's right. All right. Well, let's get into our text. Um, I was going to read the one perfect life combination, but we'll do that next time. Right. Let's read our let's read our text in John. And so this would be John twelve one through eleven, right? That's noted at the top of your notes in the subtitle. John 12, 1 through 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you have, you always have with you, but you do not always have me. All right, so the first, first point on our outline here is John sets the scene for the dinner. Um, so that would be the first two verses. So six days before the Passover. Uh, is this the start of Passover or is this the day of Passover? I, I don't know because Passover itself, um, you know, would have been actually several days. Remember the Galileans had a tradition of celebrating Passover meal the night before. Okay, that's why Jesus did that with his disciples. Most of them were Galileans, uh, Judas being the sole exception. But um, the, 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 the Judeans would have celebrated it the day of the Passover meal that evening after the lambs were being slaughtered. Um, so I'm not exactly sure, but it's, I, I, I think it's probably fair to say 
six days before Jesus is crucified. Because I think that's that's really the heart of, you know, that's where everything is going, right? All of these different storylines are all working to converge toward, you know, all roads lead to Rome kind of thing. It's all going to that cross. That's my best guess. But six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany. Now, remember, where's he been? Back up in, in a few verses into chapter 11, verse 54, a town called Ephraim. Okay? Notice, no, it's, it's a town, but it's across, uh, I believe it's across the Jordan, if I remember right. Um, it's been a while since I read that, that detail. What, what did you say, Larry? I said that was the wilderness. Back up in 54. Further came to the country near the wilderness. It's called Ephraim. Right, right, right. Yeah, right. Of, region near the wilderness. Instead of Ephraim, I said wilderness. Oh, right. Okay. I think what John's point is, is that it's a secluded place. Like I said, you have to want to, it's one of the places you have to want to get there. It's right on the edge of, you know, the sticks, you know, the wilderness, right? Um, it's not a heavily populated area like Jerusalem and surrounding um, suburban areas like Bethany. Remember, how far is Bethany? From Jerusalem? Yes, from Jerusalem. Two months, right. I don't even know if Bethany's on this map. Sometimes it's, it's, it's so Bethany. small. Yeah, it's not, it didn't show up there because it's so close to Jerusalem and it's so small. that It was basically what we would today call a bedroom community. That's effectively what it was. And it was a, a wealthy sector, you know, kind of more desirable real estate, close enough to Jerusalem to be convenient, but far enough out of the hubbub, right? You know, kind just like, like South today. Asheville to Asheville, right? Yeah. Right. Kind of desirable. It's, it's where the airport would have been, right? Fly, uh, flying into Bethany. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so, so he's there in Bethany. Um, who do you think he's staying with? Probably Mary Martha. Yeah. What was interesting is, like I say, is uh, let's, let's flip your notes over for a second. Let's, let's read the parallel accounts. Um, what I'm doing here, and you notice in those parallel accounts in Matthew and Mark, I've, I've put an extra line in there to kind of segregate these, these three. They're very, very similar. When you compare Matthew and Mark, they're very, very similar. And the, and the, and, and the segments are match as well, right? So the first segment there, let's look at Matthew first. Matthew 26, uh, verses 1 through 5, uh, say, When Jesus had finished these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, the Son of Man will be delivered uh, up to be crucified. And the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the, the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Um, and, and I think what, what Matthew and Mark has a very similar, Mark is even more condensed. It's two days before the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the uh, chief priests and the scribes were seeking to arrest and kill him by stealth. Matthew kind of alludes to what, what John's already told us about that, that emergency council, right? And I think the way Matthew makes it sound is it's like the two days before Passover, but actually he's doing the same thing again. He's saying, before I tell you this next point, let me tell you what had happened. And John helps us with that chronology to know that it happened several weeks before, not right on the doorstep of Passover. 
So they plotted together. Um, but uh, here's the thing I, I really wanted us to see. Look at um, verse 5 of Matthew 26. But they said, this is the chief priests now and elders of the people, okay, the, the, the Jewish leaders. They plotted to arrest him, but look at what they say in verse 5. Not during the feast. Don't miss that detail. That's important. Look at Mark, verse 2. Are with me? And they said what? Not during the feast. Lest there be an uproar among the people. Look, look at those two together. That's why I put them side by side right there in your notes. So you don't flip back and forth, right? You can see it right there. It's real clear. They both say the same thing. Critical point. The leaders did not want to crucify Jesus during Passover. Interesting. It wasn't their plan to do that. They didn't want to do it. They, they wanted to get the holiday. It makes sense, right? you got your own relatives in town. And you got other things going on. you got plans going on. And yeah, we want to kill him, but not now, right? This is Christmas. Let's wait, let's wait, till, let's wait till February, you know? Get the holidays behind it. You know what I'm saying? You know, Same idea. Great, though, is doing that. They created an even bigger holiday that's more important than Passover. Nobody knows what Passover is, but everybody knows what Easter is. So Jesus got him in the end, doggone it. Oh, God did, yes. He worked it out. Huh. Their, their concern here, though, this is interesting, is, uh, you know, it doesn't mention the interruption of their personal lives. Okay, that was there. But the main, the main issue is what? They're worried about the enthusiasm of God. And Matthew and Mark, that kind of doesn't really make a lot of sense in Matthew and Mark if you don't know what John tells us, right? Because John has just told us Jerusalem is, is you got all these devout, devout Jews coming in, and they'd heard of Jesus, and perhaps many of them had actually seen him, and maybe some have been healed by him. And they're streaming into Jerusalem, and you've got this core of excited, wealthy, well-connected uh, witnesses who are beginning to believe Jesus is the Messiah. Let me tell you what he did down in Bethany, right? And there's all this excitement. And so the, the leaders know that. And they're like, we got to wait till after Passover because there's a million people in town. And a lot of them are buzzing. I mean, everybody's buzzing about Jesus. And a lot of them are thumbs up. You know, if we, if we start arresting him and defeating him in some way, that we may have a riot on our hands. Because they were already, especially the chief priests, right? We, we saw in the prior notes that the chief priests were unpopular with the people, right? They were already on shaky ground. So cleansing the temple also helped his popularity. Oh, yes, it did. It sure did. Yeah, I like that. Sure but your point, dear, is, is a good one, and that is that despite their best efforts, God had his way in the end, didn't he? Yes, he did. But I think it's interesting because... Judas wasn't ready. We're going to see that when we get into chapter 13, when, you know, in, in the upper room, and they're having uh, that meal together, that Passover. Jesus is the one who dismisses Judas and tells him what, you, what you're about to do, do it. Go, go quickly. You know, when, and I used to think, well, why do you tell him to go quickly? Because when you get up and leave, it's quick. Yeah. I think I don't think what he means is, is like, you know, like right now, what he means is, Get this started now, not after Passover, is what Jesus is trying to say, more effectively. Jesus is the one who pulls the trigger or drops the stone that starts the avalanche, you might say. Okay. Um, and, and so, anyway, all right, so that's the, so now let's look at the parallel accounts. Uh, Matthew 
Matthew's account begins in verse 6. Um, now when Jesus was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster, alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the, <clears throat> when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, and you do not, but you do not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. From that moment on, he saw an opportunity to betray him. You see that connection? Boom. Immediately. As soon as, you know, they don't tell us, Matthew, and if you, you can read Mark's account in one time. Same thing. They don't tell us that it was Judas who led that complaint about the so-called waste of the oil, right? John fills that detail in. But Matthew and Mark tie that very clearly to Judas then immediately leaving, almost immediately, maybe. I'm sure he waited until after dinner, maybe the next day, but he went as quickly as he could. It was like the thing that pushed him over the edge to go to the chief priests and, and um, volunteer to help them. Well, Judas had been front and center to many, many miracles, and Jesus is teaching. We've seen his compassion, his, his tireless uh, work from sunup to sundown many, many times for his disciples and for people around him, right? Shows the deceitfulness of sin, the hardness of his heart. But you know what? The greatest, the greatest single, well, the greatest single sin, but man, that's right up there, right? Ever committed. Recorded. Came from a love of money. <clears throat> recorded, right? It's pretty interesting. Pretty scary. Sin recorded, right? Yeah. 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 Sin recorded. Right. I mean, what did Judas want? For Mary to give him that perfume so he could sell it and have all the money for himself? Well, we just read in John's account that he was he was the keeper of the money bag. Mm -hmm. What he wanted was for them to sell that, you know, why don't you just give us the oil? We'll go sell it and give it to the poor. In other words, we'll take the proceeds, put it in that purse, and now Judas has a whole lot of money he can steal from. Well, that was, he needs it. He wants it. Because he was the only one having the account of it. You know, he's like the treasurer. He'd say, oh, we only got $20 in here, but we really have 50 Yeah. Maybe word spread about Jesus and Mary and Martha knew what was going on. That's why Mary wanted to make sure Jesus got the oil instead of Judas for his own selfish, selfishness. Like she, she didn't have that in mind at all. I think what she was doing is being very grateful to the Lord for raising her brother yeah. a few days before. So and, 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 and what's interesting is, you know, that other parallel, parallel account we just talked about in Luke, right? In, in both cases, there's another parallel, which I didn't mention is that in both cases, the pouring out of this oil seems to be tied to repentance. In both cases. 
In the case of the woman, the prostitute, that's that's obvious. We understand that, right? right? But with the with Mary, what is she repenting of? Not believing that Jesus would raise Lazarus from the dead. She was one of those voices saying, Lord, if only you had been here, I probably would not have died. Have you been there? Doubting God's goodness? Lord, where are you? I mean, I'm, I'll be honest with you. you know, we're struggling with that right now. Lord, what's going on with this well? You know, do you not see? I know, my theology tells me that he knows. Not only does he know, but he's ordained it. Okay? Um, but there are times when your faith is weak and you're like, your emotions and you know the frustration of that is getting the best of you. But then when the Lord comes through and you look back on that circumstance and you see his fingerprints all over it, how he provided for you even during the tough time and the grace, and then how he works all these things out to a, a better, far better conclusion than what you could have possibly asked for, that's humbling. And in many cases for me, it's it's led to repentance like that, you know what I'm saying? Uh, forgive me for my, my lack of faith, my, my disappointment in you, uh, my unbelief that you are as good as I know you are. Right? Question. Verse number eight there, the word disciples. That's cool. Is that in uh, the Matthew's account there on the back of the sheet? Does that mean that all of them kind of agree in the Jews? Yeah, there's a lot of things we, we don't have time for right now. We'll continue talking about it. Another one is, um, yeah, anyway, yes. Um, that is one of the things that stood out to me, is that, uh, that apparently other disciples kind of joined in. That's why, that's why I, I worded it this way, that John shows Judas to be the one leading the complaint. He's not the only one making the complaint, apparently, but he is certainly the most vocal voice in leading that complaint. Hey, I've got a, I've got a theory about that. Who was Judas's buddies that paired up with him to go do the ministry? It's probably those two. <laughs> yeah. Or those three. four. Well, however many there were. So who were his buddies? I bet they were the ones ch chiming in. You know how it is. They're part of their own clique. They got to stand up for each other. Yeah, it could right. be. It could be. It could be others in the room. Who knows? Um, it is interesting, though, Larry. I did notice that too. Matthew and Mark both uh, say that it was uh, disciples, plural. Um, okay. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be one. It would be sad to be yeah. one of the ones stuck with Judas's team, wouldn't it? Oh man, I got stuck with Judas's team. He was the betrayer. Wow. Well, you wouldn't think of that as you're going along. You might think it as your benefit having money back. Yeah. Well, after the fact, though, after the fact, after the fact, I could have ended up with Judas here. They probably thought, I can't believe, I can't believe I was deceived. Especially Peter. Because in many senses, you know, we, we, we say, you know, and, and what Judas did was very, very wicked and betraying. But Peter did basically the same thing. He didn't kiss the Lord. He denied him three times. Right? In, in, by the way, when we, I've been studying that uh, in my other John Bible studies in chapter 18. 
He did it in front of John. John was there to hear Peter's denial. First person. It's interesting. It's the best thing it is. So, and can you imagine that? Your best buddy, you know, part of your little group, right? And he's like, I don't know, man. And you're like, Peter? But sure John, that? There's a lot of tension. Appreciate it. See, yeah. even said that to him, too. Yeah. He did, and he prayed for him. He told him prior to that. <clears throat> and then I can imagine the third time it closed, you know, he, he, he had Jesus in his side. Jesus looks at Calvin. He just looked, looked at him. him. Yep, I saw it. I remember that. Looked right at him. Boom. Right in the chest. And I think it's Luke that says that he went out and wept bitterly. But the difference, I mean, Peter, in reflecting on that, could have, you know, it's the grace of God, it right? Is. I mean, it really is the grace it of is. God. That kept Peter from doing from going the whole way that Judas did too, and I think Peter was very mindful of that. But he had to be taught that lesson. He had a huge ego. Uh, well, the thing is, what we do is good we thing we don't. Yeah, I'm sorry. 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 Yeah, i he has attributes and the, the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. He's scared to death. He's seeing and he's knowing what's going to happen to him. That is what he's got in his mind. Yeah. I remember John MacArthur said one time, I know he said, the man was terrified. Did that give him the right to, 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 to denounce Christ? No. But he said, how are you going to act? This is a test for you. When the day, if the day ever comes and you're going to be standing for that, he said, John even said, I hope. That I'm strong enough to yeah. say, boom, I will not denounce Christ. You don't know until you're in the That's exactly right. All right, well, a lot more to talk about. We'll talk about what that oil is, where it comes from. When you read the word ointment, if you're like me, I'm thinking, I used to think of that little paste that you have in you have to get the antibiotic ointments, right? And they're Vaseline based, and you have to kind of squeeze them out. That's not what we're talking about. Here, okay. Took a long time to find Ephraim of the wilderness. It's, oh, uh, pretty tough. Yeah. But so was that a region, Ephraim? To see Jerusalem. It says town in, in, in near the wilderness. And see, I mean, you know. that's the Ju Judah, you know, Samaria, Ephraim. Oh, it's a, near, a region. It's got a region there. Yeah. John says it was a town. Some of them say village, some say town, some say read. So, it was near the wilderness, yeah. It was a remote place, is the, I think the main. Yeah. Well, the mountains there, it looks like. All right, let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the accounts of the Gospels. And, and as Dad said, the harmony uh, it's, that Scripture has. We thank you for. Um, the fact that you sent your son and he went to the cross on behalf of our sin to pay our debt and uh, was willing to go through all this difficulty even having his close personal friend and Judas was a friend um, right up to the time he betrayed him but um, to be betrayed like that by not just him but Peter and others as well uh, and, and on top of everything else, and uh, but we're willing to do that for us is just amazing. Pray your blessing on the service this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.